Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. And now we're going to turn to the scripture this morning. We've been in a series in the book of Esther. Uh, And so today we come to Esther chapter 6. And uh, I'll be jumping into that in a minute. But first, I love sci-fi. So anybody love sci-fi? All right. All right. We got some sci-fi lovers. That's good. Um, I love space sci-fi specifically. I grew up watching uh, Star Trek. Now, I'm too young for the classic Star Trek, but my dad made me watch it as much as we could when I was a kid. Uh, and then I, I grew up, and you had a next generation was kind of my, my growing up years. And then Voyager and Deep Space Nine and all the Star Treks just loved them. Um, I was really into them. And then Star Wars came later for me, and I learned to get into Star Wars. I love Star Wars. And I, I, was, I, I, I love the idea of going out and, and meeting new people meeting new kinds of people, exploring new planets, seeing new places, um, experiencing uh, a, a people who are radically different from us. You know, the alien has always had a fascination for me, whether it's um, someone from a different culture or a different place who speaks a different language here on earth, or the idea of meeting some extraterrestrial who I've, you know, couldn't imagine who they are or where they're from. Unfortunately, all of my dreams of space exploration and meeting Alien civilizations is probably never going to come to pass. Not because we don't have the technology for it. We don't have the technology for it, let's be real. But because we're probably alone in the universe. Did you know this? No? Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, There's an old equation from the 60s that tries to calculate what the odds are of intelligent life forming anywhere in the universe. And that equation has a few variables missing, but in recent years, they've been able to fill in a couple of those variables and come closer to a, a real estimate of what it would take for intelligent life in the universe to evolve. And it turns out, it turns out that the chances of intelligent life evolving are so slim, so minuscule, that there might not be enough habitable planets in the universe for another intelligent species to have evolved. This is crazy, right? Like, you think about the size of the universe and the trillions and trillions and billions of trillions of planets that exist in the universe, and you think, is it really possible that in all of that, we are actually alone? That we are the only intelligent species, intelligence being sentient as we are. Like, we can reflect on ourselves and think about who we are as as beings. Is it really possible that in all of the universe... We are alone as an intelligent species, and it's, it's possible. Now, those mathematical models that are out there, they're not, they're not 100% accurate. They're not right. There may be others. God may have created others. But the probability of that happening naturally is minuscule, so that even now many scientists and many astrobiologists think that humanity might be unique in all of the universe. Now, for Christians, for people who believe in God, who believe in a sovereign God, who has ordered creation, that wouldn't, shouldn't be surprising at all. That God saw fit to make things work so that we would 
grow and develop, if we would become, whether you believe in theistic evolution, that God guided the process of evolution and breathed the soul into people, or whether you believe God created Adam and Eve from the dust, whether you believe in a six-day creation, or you believe that the earth truly is 4.5 billion years old, whichever way or more, whatever you happen to believe, as people who believe in a God, we believe in a sovereign God who has ordered creation and who has shepherded the process of our growth and development from the beginning, regardless of how you view that beginning. So let's set that aside. Let's not even worry about the beginnings and the origins. Let's just talk about humanity as it is and God's interaction with us. If we believe in a sovereign God, we believe that God has shepherded our development, has shepherded us to where we are today. We don't believe in coincidences. And that's what's been happening here in the book of Esther. You see, there there have been coincidence after coincidence after coincidence that has happened in this story to get Esther and Mordecai and Haman and the king to where they are at this point in the story. We've read multiple times that someone found favor with someone else. And I've told you that when you see that, when you see that verbiage, you're supposed to imagine the hand of God at work bringing favor into that circumstance. But then there have been other things that have happened that have, that have seemed coincidental, seemed like they just kind of happened. And if they didn't happen in just the right order, in just the right way, then this story would be radically different than it is. And anytime you see a coincidence in the scripture, let alone just in the book of Esther, you're supposed to read the hand of God at work. The sovereign God who is shepherding things in the way that God wants them to go. Still allowing people the will and the freedom to act and yet being able to move things and influence things in such a way that God's plans and purposes come about. And that's exactly what happens here at the beginning of chapter 6. So to catch you up on where we are in the story of Esther. Esther takes place in the city of Susa, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. There's this king. In Hebrew, his name is Ahasuerus. In Greek, his name is Xerxes. You might have heard that name before. If you ever saw the movie The 300, that king who came, he's, that's, that's Xerxes. He's a crazy, crazy dude who is mercurial and flippant and who is just kind of guided by his advisors whichever way they want to turn his head. So he's, he's fairly weak. He's fairly impulsive. And Ahasuerus, at the beginning of the book of Esther, deposes his wife Vashti because she won't come present herself before his noblemen so they can ooh and ah over how beautiful she is. And he needs to find a new queen. He goes out and has his henchmen take up all of the beautiful young women of the kingdom, all the young beautiful young women of the city, to bring into his harem to undergo these beauty treatments so he can pick a new queen. And then they'll go back to his harem so he can call them whenever he wants them. That's what happens at the beginning of the book. The woman who gets chosen as queen is Esther, this Jewish girl who was raised by her cousin Mordecai. And we read that in the king's council, there's this nobleman named Haman who, for one reason or another, hates Mordecai with a burning passion. He hates Mordecai so much so. He hates Mordecai so much that he also hates all Jewish people. And so Haman orchestrates it so that there's a decree to go out for the destruction of all the Jewish people. All of them. Only back in chapter 2, uh, 2 and 3, we read that Mordecai had been sitting in the king's gate. He'd been sitting outside the palace, and he overheard a couple of dudes planning the assassination of the king. And so Mordecai went to someone and told them, hey, These two guys are planning to assassinate the king. 
and he foils the assassination attempt. And that's the last we hear of it until the beginning of chapter 6. And so now the king is trying to sleep. Ahasuerus is trying to sleep, but you know the burdens and the weight of being the emperor of the Persian Empire are on him, and he's just having trouble falling asleep. So he does what any one of us would do. He calls his servant and says, hey, can you bring me the most boring thing you can to read to me so I will fall asleep? Because that's what you do, right? And the servant brings him the record of what has passed in the kingdom recently. And it just so happens that this servant turns to the page that recounts the story of Mordecai foiling this assassination attempt. And the king is like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot about that. Did we do anything for this Mordecai guy? The servant's reading through and he's like, no, nothing ever happened. Now in Persian society, in this society, it's really important to the king that he honor anybody who honors him. That he honor anybody who protects him, who helps him. That is an incentive for people to be on the king's side. And so the king really wants Mordecai to be thanked for saving his life. And so the king says to the servant, hey, is there anybody in the courtyard, any of my nobles around? Like it's the middle of the night, right? Any of my nobles around? Well, it just so happens that Haman, Mordecai's hater, is walking into the palace just at the time that the king needs to talk to an advisor. Oh, this is convenient. This is a happy little coincidence, right? And so... The servant brings Haman in. Haman comes before the king, and the king says to, the, to, Morde, uh, to Haman, hey, what should I do for somebody I really want to honor? And Haman's like, yeah, this is great. Haman, at this point, is number two in the kingdom. He's been elevated. And so what goes through Haman's mind, right, according to the scripture here, is who would the king want to honor more than me? And so Haman comes up with the best plan. He's like, king, here's what you do. Here's what you do. I want you, and he's giddy the whole time. You can imagine, like, he's just super excited about this the whole time. I want you to take one of your own robes and put it on this guy. And I want you to take one of your own horses that your butt's actually sat on and saddle it and put a crown on the horse. And then I want you to have a servant come and parade this person through the city shouting their praises. And the king's like, that sounds like a great idea, Haman. Why don't you do that for Mordecai? Right? That's amazing, right? And Haman, you can see his face, right? Like you just just picture this in a movie. Haman is like, yes! And then the king says that and Haman goes. And so he's got to do that. So Haman goes and he gets one of the king's horses and he gets one of the king's robes. And Haman goes and calls Mordecai. Mordecai, come with me. (laughs) I'm sure he sent a servant to do this. Haman didn't do this himself. You wonder what that interaction is like, right, between Haman and Mordecai? Because they've got to interact somehow. I know there are servants to do all this work. But at some point, Haman has to interact with Mordecai in this whole situation. And you you got to, like, imagine what that's like. Haman's like, yeah, this is what the king wants to do for you. And so Haman gets all the things that he proposed And he puts Mordecai up on a horse, and Haman's the one who has to lead the horse shouting Mordecai's praises through the city. This is, I think this is the funniest scene in the entire Bible. Like, it's just ridiculous. And so Haman hangs his head. I mean, the the Hebrew here, I wish we could all read Hebrew, because 
English is good, but Hebrew is way better at this kind of thing when, it's, when you're reading it. And so the, the Hebrew makes it seem like, like Haman really is just like hangdog going home, you know? He's like Charlie Brown on the way to his house. And so Haman, he skulks back home. And, you know, you can imagine him coming in the door and his wife's like, what's wrong, honey? You were going to go get Haman executed. Like, didn't that work out for you? Um, but she knows because her husband has just had to parade his mortal enemy through the city and sing his praises. And so his wife, Haman's wife, says, well, Haman, you get a problem because Mordecai is Jewish. And now that you've begun to fall before him, you ain't ever going to recover from this. Your destruction is assured because Mordecai is Jewish. Now, she's not a Jew. right? She's got no skin in this game. But she recognizes that the God of the Jews is going to protect Mordecai and that there's nothing Haman can do. And that's where we end the chapter. It's just this crazy wild day. And this is the point where it really begins to turn. This chapter is kind of a whole synopsis of the book of Esther. Look at this, ter- this thing that is happening, seems terrible, seems awful, and then all of a sudden, boom, God's people are exalted. Boom, God has has been working behind the scenes, even though we haven't seen it. Even though we haven't seen God's hand explicitly at work. Now, we come to this text, and we read this story, and because we know the end, we read the end back into it. But here's what I want you to understand. What has happened to Esther through this entire story has been nothing short of tragic the entire time. Yes, she is the queen of Persia. She has no real power. She has no real authority. She has no real influence. She was abducted from her home, taken into the king's harem to be used by him so that she could be a figurehead by his side and he could have the most beautiful woman he could find next to him. And we think, sometimes we read back into the story and we read Esther in chapters 8 and 9 back into Esther in chapter 3 and 4. But this girl is terrified when she goes before the king to start. She, she grows in confidence, but that's only later in the story when she's learned the kind of influence that she has. Early on, she is terrified, and she is abused, and she is used. And so up until this point, we have no idea if the story is going to work out for God's people or not. Up until this point, and this is the point where things really do turn around. In the last chapter, we saw Esther come before the king and find favor with him, and he was reminded of his love for her. But even after that, we don't know if Esther's plan is going to work out. We saw her have one meeting with the king and Haman that seemed to go pretty well, but she didn't actually ask the king to do what she wanted to ask him to do, which was to rescind the order for her people's destruction. We didn't see that happen. We know that's going to happen at a next banquet. And so this chapter sits in between those two banquets to tell us, to give us a foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the next banquet. Now that we've seen the exaltation of Mordecai, now we can expect that when Esther goes to the king and says, hey, king, um, there's this decree out for the destruction of my people and I would like it to go away, we can expect that that will happen. But up until this point, we don't know that. And this point's the point where the hope begins to rise. This is the point where we begin to see God's hand truly at work behind 
the scenes. And this is such an encouragement for us because it's been somewhere on the order of nine years since Vashti was deposed, since the king kicked out his former wife. It's been something on the order of almost a decade since that happened. And it's been tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. And Esther's been used. And we haven't clearly seen the hand of God at work. And isn't that most of our lives? I mean, isn't that most of human life? Like, you, you muddle through and you push through and you go and you do what you need to do and you're not really sure if God's there. And it may go on for year after year after year. We can get to these places where we're totally stuck and we're not sure, God, what is happening here? And we can't see the hand of God at work behind the scenes. We're not sure what he's doing, what he's up to. We're not sure if God's even in this thing. We're living in the place of Esther. Things have happened to us. They've put us in the position that we're in. We were born to where we were. We've lived in the community we've lived in. We've been shaped and influenced by the people and things around us. And we've had little to no control over it. And it's really hard to see in the moment where God is. This is why we turn to the book of Esther. Because all through this book, we don't see God's name mentioned. We don't see God explicitly at work. And for half of the book, we're wondering, God, where are you? There is this evil order out there to have your people destroyed. You have allowed your daughter to be used and abused. You've allowed Mordecai to be put down. Where are you? For nine years. There's a lot packed into these five chapters before this. And they're just muddling through, doing what they can. And we've seen expressions of hope from Mordecai and Esther. We've seen Mordecai say to Esther, maybe God put you in this position. Well, he didn't say God, but that's what he means. Maybe you were put in this position for this time so you could save your people. And we've seen Esther say, okay, I may die, but I'm going to go to the king. It may kill me, but I'm going to go. I'm going to, I'm going to work on behalf. I'm going, to, I'm going to argue on behalf of my people. We've seen these moments of hope in a very hopeless story. And that's our lives. Esther's a comedy in the classical sense of a comedy. It's tragedy upon tragedy until a reversal happens at the end. And I think comedy is the art form that most reflects our true lives if we're followers of Jesus. This life is hard. And we muddle through and we push through and we have faith and we believe and yet we so rarely see the hand of God explicitly at work in our lives. So often we wonder, God, where are you? What are you doing? I don't see what you're doing. And the book of Esther reminds us that there are no coincidences for those of us who believe in a sovereign God. That our God truly is at work behind the scenes at all times. In so many ways, this, this story mirrors the story of Israel before the coming of Jesus. For years and years and decades and even centuries, the people of God were wondering, God, where are you? We've been in exile in Babylon. We've been in exile in Persia. We've been at home, but the Spirit of God never came back on the temple, and then the Romans came in and took over, and we've been under these rulers and these wicked people, and these pagan empires have ruled over us. Where 
are you, God, over and over and over and over again? There's this uh, section of books that are missing from our Protestant Bibles but are in Catholic Bibles. These books that come from what we call the intertestamental period between Malachi at the end of our Protestant Bible and Matthew at the beginning of our Protestant Bible. And we don't necessarily believe that those are inspired scripture, but sometime go and, and read those books. Read Maccabees. Read the stories from the, that period of time between Malachi and Matthew. What was going on with the people of God? What was happening? And what you see is that cry out over and over, God, where are you? And there are these slivers and moments of hope, and then they get squashed again. And there's another sliver and moment of hope, and then it's squashed again, over and over and over and over again. In so many ways, Esther echoes the story of Israel, which really echoes the story of every follower of Jesus. Every person who would give their lives to God. Where we, we push through and we push through and we see moments of hope and then the darkness seems to come again. And we see moments of hope and the darkness seems to come again. So what do we do? What does Esther do? Here we have the exaltation of Mordecai. Here we have Mordecai lifted up, put on the king's own horse, paraded through the streets, praised by his mortal enemy. And we know at that moment that things are turning around. We know at that moment, oh, things are looking up. Things are going to work out. God's at work. God's doing stuff. And we hold on to this story. We hold on to the exaltation of Mordecai to show us where we're going. Where do, what do we hold on to? Follower of Jesus, what do we hold on to when it's dark, when we've seen the, the glimpse of light and then the darkness has come back in? What do we hold on to when we're stuck in that cycle of struggling and trying to figure out what's next? What do we hold on to when we're asking, God, where the hell are you? Where are you? Because my life seems like hell right now. What do we hold on to? The Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse of that. In Romans chapter 8, in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul is writing, and, and he's, he's writing in the midst of, of real turmoil for the people of Rome, for the Christians of Rome. The Christians have not been well accepted in the community. They haven't been accepted by the Gentile community. They haven't been accepted by the Jewish community. And there's, there's just friction everywhere. There's tension everywhere. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome for a couple of reasons. One is because he's never been able to visit them. He's never been able to go to them and, and teach them the things that he taught in other places like Corinth and Ephesus and Thessalonica. He hasn't had a chance to be there and disciple them. And so he writes this long, thick letter with all these truths about who Jesus is. But he's writing this not as an ivory tower exercise of like theological beauty, right? He, he's not trying to be an academic lecturing them. He's teaching them so that they will be unified across their differences. He's writing to them and teaching them the good news of Jesus so that that good news will overcome the differences in the people and overcome the conflict that they have with one another. Only Paul recognizes, he's, he's a realist here, he recognizes that this conflict is hard. The conflict that these people are experiencing with one another and with the city are very difficult. 
There's, there's a struggle. But he gives the people this exhortation, this encouragement here at the end of chapter 8. And this is so beautiful. What then are we say, to say about these things? That is about that God has chosen a people and called them out and those people will experience conflict but Jesus has chosen to glorify them. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what that long list of things means? That long list of death, life, powers, it means nothing. Paul wanted to make it so clear. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Jesus Christ. Nothing, nada, nothing at all. And so it doesn't matter what the world looks like. It doesn't matter what the situation looks like. It doesn't matter how dark the day seems. Christ loves you and holds you and protects you and will see you to the end. And so when like Esther, when like chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 of Esther, we're looking at our story and we're going, this is dark and I don't see the hand of God. I don't know. We turn and we look to the exaltation of Jesus. We turn and we look to our King Jesus who came, made like us, God, wrapped in flesh, looking like one of us who was exalted in the cross and then in his resurrection and rose to reign over his people as king. In Esther, we can look to the exaltation of Mordecai and know that the story is going to be okay. But that's only one story, one time-bound story. And we don't live in Persia. And we're not Jewish citizens of this foreign kingdom. Christian, follower of Jesus, when the world is dark, we don't look to the exaltation of any ordinary man. We don't look to some good thing. We don't look to some some simple hope. We look to the king of all things. To the God who made the world and has promised never to leave or forsake his children. Who said, I love you so much that I won't let your sins separate you from me. I love you so much I won't let the world overcome you. I love you so much that the powers and principalities and authorities outside of the church will never overcome it. I love you so much I'll wrap myself in flesh and I will walk the dirt of this world and I will let your sin and the sin of the world crucify me to free you. And when you hold on to that hope, when you have that kind of hope, when that's the God that you believe in, when that's the God that follow, you follow, when that's the God who's given you the life that resides in you, who can touch it? Amen. Nobody. 
nothing. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 8 here. He's looking back at the dark history of division and of struggle and of strife in the world. And he's saying, but all of that, it's real. Don't get me wrong, it's real and it's painful and it's hard. But all of that does not hold a candle to the blazing light of the glory of Jesus Christ that he has promised for you as well. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our exalted one who tells us that the story's going to end on his terms, not on the world's terms. The story's going to end on his terms, not on the terms of the powers of the world, of the governments of the world, the organizations and institutions of the world. Jesus is the one who's in charge. Jesus is the one who's in control. But unlike Mordecai, when Jesus came, he wasn't exalted and lifted up among his people. He wasn't led through the streets being praised by his enemy. No, Jesus came and he took that gallows reserved for Mordecai. He took the gallows that Haman will be hanged on, the spike that they would be impaled on. When Jesus came, he didn't get his exaltation from the people that he lived among. Jesus came and was crucified as our king. Jesus came and took the punishment that belonged to us. Jesus came and let the powers of the world not exalt him, but destroy his body so that he could prove his power and his victory over them in the resurrection and in his ascension. Our hope is not in a triumphant king who comes with armies to make war on the world. Our hope is in a crucified king who said, my love for you and for the world that I made is so great that I will let its sin take my life. I will let its sin destroy me. My love for you is so great that I will let all of the evil of this world exhaust itself on me because I can take it and I know you can't. And in taking the death that the world could dole out, he gave us the life that only he could give the life that resides in us, the life that points us to an eternal hope of glory, the life that points us to our King Jesus, the life that is manifest in the power of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of followers of Jesus. And so we can truly say that for the follower of Jesus, nothing will ever turn out bad in the end. We can say for the one who follows Jesus, God is at work and is always working and will not stop until all things have been made right and good for us and for the world. This is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That all things will be made right in the end. And we can look to the glorification of Jesus. We can look to our King Jesus. We can look to our returning Lord and say, it doesn't matter what happens to me in the here and now. We can look to our King Jesus, and we can truly say that I am persuaded now that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's our declaration, people. In the midst of whatever is going on, that's our declaration. And so... I encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes trained 
on him. Don't focus on the darkness. Don't focus on the struggle. Don't focus on the momentary here and now. Yes, things may be hard. Yes, life can be very difficult. Yes, life throws us things and we have to endure them. But our King Jesus is greater than all of them. And he has given us his word to point us to him. He's given us his Holy Spirit living within us to empower us to endure whatever we must. And he has given us his people to walk through it with us together. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is your hope. He is your life. He is your light. He is your strength. He is your identity and hope. He will carry you through. God, thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope that is ours because we have been made alive through the power of your Holy Spirit because of the death and resurrection and reign of our King Jesus. Thank you for calling us your own. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have overcome and you will overcome. And would you root us deeply in this truth that we've been shared with, this truth from Romans, that absolutely nothing can separate the one who is in Christ from his love. Thank you for calling us your own Thank you for loving us through our sin. Thank you for conquering the world so that we have an eternal hope in you. In the name of Jesus.